Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode 293 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Space 1970, Soyuz 9 with Nikolaev and Sevastyanov. The year 1970 continued to go well for the Soviets. The success of Lunar 16, 17, Lenokhod, and Venera 7 were good examples of the Soviets' unmanned capabilities. But what about the Soviets' manned program? How did it compare to its chief rival, the United States? It's been a while since the last Soyuz mission, so I wanted to quickly cover how we reached Soyuz 9. I'm sure you recall the Soyuz program was intended to rejuvenate the Soviet space program by developing space rendezvous, docking, and practical extravehicular activities without tiring the cosmonaut, as was demonstrated by the U.S. in its Gemini program. These capabilities would be required for the Salyut space station program. Soyuz 1 was covered in episodes 139 through 141. It launched with the goal of docking with the manned Soyuz 2 craft, but even before the second craft was launched, problems with Soyuz 1 made it clear that Soyuz 2 had to be canceled before the landing of Soyuz 1. This probably saved the lives of the three-man Soyuz 2 crew. You may recall Soyuz 1 ended with the death of cosmonaut Vladimir Komarov on April 23, 1967, due to a faulty parachute system. Soyuz 2 would have flown with the same defective system as Soyuz 1. As a result, the Soyuz spacecraft was revised for Soyuz 2 and 3 in 1968. In the meantime, the Soviets did perform a semi-successful docking in automatic mode with Cosmos 186 and Cosmos 188, as covered in episode 143. Soyuz 2 and 3, covered in episode 158, was an attempt at the first Soviet manned docking with an unmanned Soyuz vehicle. Cosmonaut Grigory Beregovoy piloted the Soyuz 3 and attempted to dock with an unmanned Soyuz 2. Beregovoy successfully rendezvoused but could not dock with Soyuz 2. Soyuz 4 and 5, covered in episodes 172 through 173, successfully rendezvoused and docked two manned Soyuz 7K OK spacecrafts and transferred two cosmonauts from Soyuz 5 to Soyuz 4 by means of a spacewalk, since there was no method to transfer crew internally. Both spacecraft made it back to Earth, but Soyuz 5 had quite a rough descent. Soyuz 6, 7, and 8, covered in episodes 233 and 234, was the first simultaneous flight of three manned spacecraft. They performed the first vacuum welding in space, but rendezvous electronics failed in all three spacecraft, scrubbing the three-way spacecraft rendezvous mission. This brings us to Soyuz 9. The original Soyuz 9 mission was planned to fly two Soyuz spacecraft in the August to September time frame for a rendezvous and docking mission. But at the end of December 1969, the Communist Party bosses ordered that the mission be changed to a single spacecraft on a 20-day long duration flight to be launched in April 1970 
to coincide with Lenin's birthday. The change to the mission plan was opposed by OKB-1's chief designer, Mission. Mission's objection was probably because his Soyuz environmental control system was designed to only operate for five days. But with the long-duration mission, it would have to operate three to four times as long. This prompted Mission to push to accept a carbon dioxide level in the cabin atmosphere that was double the percentage considered acceptable earlier. The mission plan change was made official in February of 1970. Unfortunately, this new mission gave cosmonaut commander Kamanin an inadequate amount of time to create a training program that would prepare his cosmonauts for flight. Therefore, the state commission met and decided to move the Soyuz flight to May. Even though Kamanin said he could support the April schedule if necessary. So, in the end, the final mission plan for Soyuz 9 was an 18-day mission to test manned flight endurance, medical, biological, scientific, technical studies, and experiments in a prolonged orbital flight would also be conducted. With the mission plan decided, let's spend a little time on the hardware. The hardware for Soyuz 9 was the Soyuz 7K OK spacecraft. Recall from previous episodes, the Soyuz 7K OK was composed of three elements attached end to end the orbital module, the descent module, and the instrumentation propulsion module. The crew occupied the central element, the descent module. The other two modules were jettisoned prior to re entry. They would burn up in the atmosphere, so only the descent module returned to Earth. The Soyuz 7K-OK carried four different engine types. The first was called the Approach Correction Engine. It was the main engine used for carrying out maneuvers in orbit and also served as the retro-fire engine during re-entry. This engine could be activated manually by a simple on-off push button, or it could be activated automatically from the ground. The second engine type was the low thrust engine. These were used for attitude control. They were moved by means of a handle inside the spacecraft and could turn the spacecraft about any of its axes. The third type of engines were the translation thrusters. These were intended for turning the spacecraft in relation to its center of mass. They were also used for small approach displacement of the spacecraft during mutual maneuvering. They were controlled by means of a separate handle. The fourth type of engine was used for controlled descent, and these, in contrast with the others, were located on the descent module. These were used for carrying out the programmed turns of the ship before re-entry into the denser layers of the atmosphere, and also for banking and stabilization in respect to other axes during flight within the atmosphere. Soyuz controls were designed with the idea of liberating the crews from the elementary functions of control which could be handled by automatic equipment. Instead of having dozens of switches, each of which to perform a single function, maneuvers could be carried out by pressing a single button to activate a programmed operational sequence issuing dozens of commands. This greatly simplified the maneuvering of the spacecraft when time was short. 
However, each of the individual commands could also be initiated by the cosmonauts manually. The indicators on the Soyuz control panel showed the position of the spacecraft above the surface of the Earth, the distance and rate of approach to other spacecraft, the parameters of the cabin atmosphere and the life support system, the rate of charge or discharge of the chemical storage batteries, the network voltage and the parameters of the pneumohydraulic systems for controlling the various engines and thrusters. The controls were located in two groups, one on each side of the indicator panel. The push buttons made it possible to initiate operational systems of the spacecraft and to monitor procedures on the basis of signal lights on the control panel. Any two members of the spacecraft could control all of its systems, or the commander position could control all of them by himself. The left side group controlled the systems of communication, descent, and life support, while the right side group controlled all of the remaining systems of the spacecraft. Of course, to get the Soyuz into space, a carrier rocket was used. The Soyuz carrier rocket was the 11A511, a 1960s-era Soviet expendable rocket designed by OKB-1 and manufactured by State Aviation Plant No. 1 in Kubashayev, Soviet Union. It was used to launch Soyuz spacecraft as part of the Soyuz program, initially on unmanned test flights, followed by the first 19 manned launches of the program. It also had the capability to be used as a ballistic missile. This version of the Soyuz launcher was introduced in 1966. It was derived from the Vostok launcher, which in turn was based on the R-7 intercontinental ballistic missile. It was initially a three-stage rocket with a Block I upper stage. The new version introduced an uprated core stage and strap-on boosters which became standard for all R7-derived launch vehicles. Now that we have assembled the hardware, let's meet the crew of Soyuz 9. First, we have Andrean Grigorievich Nikolaev. He was born on September 5, 1929 in Sorsili, a village in the Chuvash region of the Volga River Valley. He spent his time growing up on a collective farm. Nikolaev loved the idea of flying even as a child. He would often climb trees and claim that he would take flight from there. Unfortunately, Nikolaev's father died in 1944, so Nikolaev worked to support his family. But his mother was against that. She preferred that he earn an education instead, which he eventually did. Nikolaev completed courses in forestry, and at age 18, went to work in forestry administration in Karelia until drafted into the Soviet Army in 1950. Nikolaev was identified as a good pilot candidate, and after the initial flight training, entered the Fighter Pilot Training School in Frunz in August 1951. During his training, Nikolaev was able to maintain a very calm state during stressful situations. Nikolaev's calm made him a candidate for becoming a cosmonaut. He completed officer and flight training in 1954 and was assigned to fighter units in the Moscow area. 
In March 1960, he and his colleagues Yuri Gagarin, Germán Titov, and 17 others began cosmonaut training. In the early days of space travel, it was common to place trainee cosmonauts into isolation chambers to see how long they could last. Cosmonauts would then sit in silence, unable to gauge time. Many men cracked, but Nikolaev did not. In fact, he lasted longer than any cosmonaut and became known as the Iron Man. In August 1962, Nikolaev made the world's first multi-day spaceflight aboard Vostok 3, becoming the third Soviet cosmonaut. His call sign was Falcon. In Vostok 3, he set a new endurance record for the longest time a human being had remained in orbit. Nikolaev was also the first person to make a television broadcast from space during the flight. Cosmonaut commander Kamanin found Nikolaev the calmest of the original cosmonauts, a good chess player, and one of only three cosmonauts kept current in the three MiG fighter types. After Valentina Tereshkova's triumphant return from her Vostok 6 flight in June 1963, a joke began circulating that she should marry Nikolaev, the only bachelor cosmonaut to have flown. Although he and Tereshkova did not dislike each other, there was no substance to the rumor of a romance. However, the story eventually reached Khrushchev. He saw potential for big propaganda benefits and began applying pressure through Kamanin, the commander of the cosmonaut detachment, for the couple to marry. They finally gave in, and the marriage ceremony took place on November 3, 1963, at the Moscow Wedding Palace, with the wedding party at a governmental mansion set apart for state receptions. Khrushchev himself presided at the party, together with top government and space program leaders. On June 8, 1964, Tereshkova gave birth to a daughter, Elena, who later went on to be a physician. She was the first child born to parents that had both flown in space. But Nikolaev's marriage was in trouble almost from the beginning. Tereshkova was often pressured by relatives to go over Kamanin's head to hire government officials to complain about Nikolaev's behavior. Finally, in 1982, when the couple was safely out of the spotlight, they divorced. In 1966 through 1967, Nikolaev began training for L-1 and L-3 manned lunar flights. Nikolaev, along with other first group cosmonauts, was assigned to complete engineering graduate courses at the Zhukovsky Test Pilot Engineering Academy. He obtained his degree in December of 1968. In January of 1969, Nikolaev survived an assassination attempt on Leonid Brezhnev, undertaken by a Soviet Army deserter. From February 1968 to 1974, he served as a deputy director for training at the Yuri Gagarin Cosmonaut Training Center. He supervised cosmonaut training for L-1 and L-3 lunar and Soyuz Earth orbit flights. 
He flew in the record duration 18-day Soyuz 9 flight in 1970. Nikolaev and his crewmate were in extremely poor physical condition after their flight. In fact, no other crew on a flight of any duration has ever come back in such bad shape. At the time, this called into serious question the Soviets' plan for long-duration space stations. In 1974, Nikolaev was named as first deputy for training at the Cosmonaut Center and stayed in that position until his retirement in 1982. This appointment was somewhat ironic, since failure to follow the pre-flight and in-flight exercise regime was considered part of the reason for his extremely poor physical condition after Soyuz 9. In 2004, Nikolaev died of a heart attack in Chaboskseri, the capital of Chuvashia in Russia. A scandal then ensued. His daughter, who lived in Moscow, wanted him to be interned in the cemetery at Star City. However, the president of Chuvashia had other ideas. After a farewell ceremony in Chuboksari, Nikolaev was buried in his native village of Shorshili, even though he had no family living there. As a twice-flown cosmonaut and one that had been aboard two record-breaking flights, Nikolaev received innumerable honors, prizes, medals, and privileges, including two Heroes of the Soviet Union and the Order of Lenin. As a more enduring monument, a prominent lunar crater was named after him. Nikolaev wrote two books titled Meeting in Orbit and Space, Road Without End. Nikolaev's crewmate for Soyuz 9 was Vitaly Ivanovich Sevastyanov. Sevastyanov was born in Krasnularysk, Russia, in July 1935. He trained as an engineer at the Moscow Aviation Institute and after graduation in 1959. He continued his studies and received a technical science degree in 1964. Then he joined Sergei Korolev's design bureau, OKB-1, as an aeronautical engineer, where he worked on the design of the Vostok spacecraft. He also lectured at the Cosmonaut Training Center, teaching the physics of spaceflight. In 1967, he began cosmonaut training himself. His first flight was Soyuz 9. Then he rode on Soyuz 18 to spend two months on the Salyut 4 space station. He was pulled from active flight status in 1976. He worked in ground control for the Salyut 6 station before returning to spacecraft design in the 1980s to work on the Russian space plane project. He was president of the Soviet Union Chess Federation from 1977 to 1986 and then again from 1988 to 89. During the 80s, he was the host of a popular television program on space exploration entitled Man, Earth, Universe. In 1993, he left the space program and was elected to the lower house of the Federal Assembly of Russia in 1994. Sevastyanov, along with Alexei Leonov, Rusty Swigert, and Georgi Greco, established the Association of Space Explorers in 1984. Membership was open to all people who had flown in outer space.
Sevashinov died in Moscow, April 5, 2010. Like Nikolaev, Sevashinov received innumerable honors, prizes, medals, and privileges, including two Heroes of the Soviet Union and two Orders of Lenin. Moving on to the launch of Soyuz 9. Several interesting events occurred leading up to the launch, and I thought it might be interesting to experience the pre-launch of a manned mission from the Soviet perspective. It wasn't until May 18th that the official launch date was set for May 31st. On May 19th, Nikolaev, his wife Tereshkova, and their daughter arrived at Tyratam. There was extensive photographic and film coverage of the space family's arrival. After they arrived, they visited the Alley of Heroes at Area 17 of the Cosmodrome. Here, each crew planted a tree before departing for space. The first 11 trees have all grown well and are now over 6 meters tall. Sevashnov planted a tree for the mission. On May 20th, the crew's sleeping hours were modified to put them in sync with the shifts at ground control over the long 18-day mission. The cosmonauts spent all day at Area 17 preparing the flight plans and logs. The next day, the crew trained with bungee cords. They would have to exercise with these cords twice a day while in space to fight off the effects of sustained zero gravity. A Zenit spy satellite was launched from Area 2, resulting in some damage to the Soyuz 9 launch pad. On May 22nd, problems were found with the Soyuz 9's electrical system. Some points in the electrical harness, which should have a 38-volt capacity, are measuring greater than 60 volts. This had to be fixed. Then the spacecraft put through its vacuum chamber test then fueling, and finally integrating with the booster. As a result, the launch would have to be delayed. The next day, the crew completed their physical test and trained with the survival kit. But Nikolaev and Sevashinov were caught smoking. Kamanin had a serious discussion with them because this was strictly prohibited. Kamanin would have replaced them for the flight, with the backup crew, but it was too late for that. On May 27th, fueling of the Soyuz 9 began. The launch was now set for 2400 on June 2nd. On May 30th, inspectors found 15 discrepancies in the spacecraft, three to four of them serious, including incorrect mounting of the crew headrest and unusable photographic equipment. Finally, on the evening of May 31st, the spacecraft was integrated with the booster and rolled out to the pad at 5 a.m. June 1st, 1970. Salutations from the Rio Grande Valley. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 293 
of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Space 1970, Soyuz 9, Part 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. First of all, sincere apologies for mispronunciation of the Russian names in this episode. And if you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 121 episodes are now available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on all podcatchers. I would like to credit my sources for this episode. Roads to Space, compiled by the Russian Scientific Research Center for Space Documentation. Two Sides of the Moon by Alexei Leonov and Dave Scott. Astronautics, the website. Sven Graf, the website. Wikipedia and the NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive. As usual, I had a few afterthoughts about this episode. In case I didn't make it clear, Vasily Mission was in charge of the OKB-1 Design Bureau, which was responsible for building the Soyuz capsules. Now, he inherited his position from the uh, great chief designer, Korolev, who could practically work miracles and Mission always had to live that down. But anyway, when the long-duration mission was imposed upon Mission by the party bosses, he naturally was concerned with the equipment his design bureau built, in particular the environmental control system. So he began to push for a higher level of acceptable carbon dioxide percentage in the capsule. To be sure, This kind of idea comes from someone who won't be breathing the extra carbon dioxide because he won't be in the capsule. What did you think of that high voltage reading on the wiring harness in the Soyuz? It kind of reminded me of Apollo 13's oxygen tank temperature switch. What about Nikolaev and Sevastyanov getting caught smoking? Kamanin got so mad he was ready to throw them off the flight, and he would have if there had only been time. And finally, the checkout crew found 15 discrepancies less than two days before the flight. Is that normal? Could that have been checked earlier, I wonder? Anyway, we'll have episode two of this series coming up next week. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2019, please consider supporting the podcast if you are financially able. You may have noticed that we don't have any commercials or ad revenue. We are entirely listener-supported. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com. Click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. We were pleased to receive eight new contributions to support the podcast over the past week. Peter H. donated at the Apollo level and earned his rocket emoji. Brad N. from Minnesota donated at the Mercury level. Matthew T. donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Otar D. donated at the Mercury level and earned his rocket emoji. Christopher H. from Georgia donated at the Mercury level and earned his moon emoji. Jordan K. from South Carolina donated at the Vostok level. David R. increased his pledge on Patreon to the Soyuz level with rocket, moon, and satellite emojis. 
James B. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. So far for this year, we are a net of minus two on the Patreons. We're at 216. We began with 218. We have a goal of reaching 300 before the end of 2019. Our total donors for 2019 have reached 286 with a goal of reaching 600 before the end of the year. For the 286 of you who have already donated for 2019, we certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Jeremy Smith. Jeremy, if you would email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I will try to have episode 294 posted by next Thursday. T-7 until episode 300. So long for now.